We are coming to the last section of the last part of our series on discovering the mission of God. We've been looking at discipleship, and we're coming kind of to the last aspect of it. John Micah mentioned it just a moment ago, and we'll jump in just a second. But if you would, let's all read this. This has been our theme verse throughout this entire period, and it uses the word we. I want you to notice that. All of us are involved in this, so read it with me. And we all are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Put very simply, Paul says that God's mission is to return us to his image that we were created in in the very beginning. And, and God's involved in that, God the Father, God the Son, who we call the Lord here, and God the Spirit. All three of them are working in this process to return us to his image. The problem is, is that you've got these forces that are battling that, who, doesn't, who, who don't want that to happen. Notice Paul in Ephesians 2, as for you, once again, us, you are dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Notice that word there. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, interesting way of describing Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. And then he goes on to describe, like the rest, we were by nature deserving, uh, deserving of wrath. And so what we've been talking about is the fact that, that there are three enemies that oppose God. God the Father's for us, God the Son's for us, God the Holy Spirit is for us. But against us is the devil, the Satan, the ruler of this world, the flesh, that part of us that's been corrupted, that we all know about, that we battle with. And then, as we focus this morning, the world. And it's that, it's that enemy called the world. That's the bear. That's the hard one. As John said in the introduction, tried, we've tried to engage it, uh, or excuse me, we've tried to relate to the world in three, of, three ways. Number one is escape from it. And, and you know of people who try to escape from it. I mean, they just pull away from the world. They live off by themselves. They don't want to have any influences from the outside coming in. And then you have those who are like, no, we need to become more like the world in order to win the world. And before long, you can't tell the difference between the world and, and those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And then the third is, as John mentioned, to engage it. We're going to talk about a little bit about that process today. The Greek word for, for world is the Greek word cosmos. And it's a very familiar world because we simply change one letter in it and it becomes cosmos. If you look it up in the dictionary, it simply means an ordered system. And, and throughout the New Testament, it's consistently translated as the world. But the problem is, it's like the word flesh, it has multiple meanings to it. And so as you're reading through, whether it's the Gospels or Paul or some of the other epistles, you have to ask yourself, how is the author using that word in this context? For instance, in the New Testament world, sometimes the world simply means the created order. What we see in the, in, in the telescopes, right? You turn over to Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world. And so it's the sun, the stars, the moons, the galaxies. It's the earth and everything that's in the earth. And so sometimes it's used that way, and, and by and large, in a very positive sense. Secondly, it refers to us as people in the world. I mean, if I were to say to you, let's all say the golden text of the Bible. 
John 3, 16. Fill in the blank. For God so loved the world. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean we, we see it. We see it in ball games, John 3, 16. We, we, we learned it. A lot of us did as kids. Not everybody, but a lot of us did as children. For God so loved the world. And that simply means the people who are in the world. And that's why Jesus died was to save us. I mean, you know, yes, God loves his creation, but he loves those of us who bear his image in the world. But then the third one's the difficult one. It's the word world in the sense of fallen creation. A culture that is in opposition, enemies of God. We'll look at a text that describes that here in just a moment. Well, actually right here, James 4, 4. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And I can't help but think about all that he pondered after the resurrection. You know, James being evidently Jesus' next brother down, half-brother down. James didn't believe in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And then after the resurrection, Jesus makes a personal appearance to his half-brother. I would have loved to have known what that conversation was like. I mean, how do you have your older brother tell you, we're brothers, but we're not brothers? You see, your father wasn't my father. And, and I can see James going, okay, your father was who? Well, my father was God. I mean, you got, you got to admit, if my older brother had told me that, I would have punched his lights out, you know. I'm like, no, no, you don't, don't go claiming God is your father. But obviously after the resurrection, after seeing what had happened to his brother and then seeing him alive, James was receptive to it. And I can see James as he mulled over all the things he had heard Jesus talking about. And so years later, he writes this little epistle, and look at what he says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I like the voice. Uh, some of you know I like to kind of pick and choose translations. And There's a translation called the voice, and, and it says, You are adulterers, and I would add adulteresses to include everybody. Don't you know that making friends with this corrupt world order, and that's what the word world means in this, in this setting, the corrupt world order is open aggression toward God. So anyone who aligns with this bogus world system is declaring war, look at that language, declaring war against the one true God. Eugene Peterson, who did the message, and, and I'm a big fan of Peterson as well, passed away three or four years ago. But Peterson says this way, getting real, you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God in His way. And do you suppose that God doesn't care? And then he adds another quote going back to the Old Testament. The proverb has it that He is a fiercely jealous lover. I mean, that's, that's language that a lot of us don't, why don't we think we realize he's a fiercely jealous lover and what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. And so the question becomes, how does Jesus address his disciples' relationship with the world? And let me just pause for a moment and say this is a tough one. This is a tough one. It's a tough one for me, for you. 
It's a tough one to discuss. Uh, I, I was telling John this morning as we were talking earlier, uh, this is going to be a tough lesson. Because depending on how much enmeshed in the world we are determines how reactive to a message like this we become. Because as John said, we're in the world, but not of the world. At least we're not supposed to be. And so I, I preached this morning with a certain amount of anxiety. That's been growing in recent years. Because as the world has become, as America has become more and more secular, Christians have become more and more secular, and it becomes more and more difficult for those who preach God's Word. And so I hope you will hear the text first and foremost. Let the text speak to you. And I hope I have prepared my heart to share this lesson. If I come across in a way that is inappropriate I apologize all of us who preach the gospel do that from time to time there was only one perfect preacher that ever exists and that was Jesus and they nailed him to a cross and so let's answer this question John 17 is fascinating John 17 is the longest prayer we have of Jesus most of us focus on the model prayer or what we call the Lord's Prayer all I have to do is begin the words you know, our Father which art in heaven, and boy, we're off and going. We can quote that one. But what you have in John 17 is Jesus' prayer right before going to the cross. And in it, he's going to pray for his disciples, and he's going to pray for us. In fact, it is the only time that I know in Scripture where you have a recording of Jesus praying specifically for us. Now, he, he prayed for us, I know, a lot. I, I don't doubt that at all. But we have here an actual record of it. And, and one of the things you find that is fascinating in this prayer is Jesus' concern about our being in the world. I mean, that's what he's concerned about. How are my followers going to interact with the culture that they find themselves in? And he says more about the world in this prayer than as far as I know anywhere else in all of his teachings. Here's the way he begins it. I have revealed you to those who you gave me, look at right off the bat, out of the world. I've revealed you to those you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. One of the things he begins is saying, listen, I am calling a certain group of people. And, and those people, God says that I'm calling Jesus, I've given to you. Now, this is not individualistic predestination that a lot of people want to read into it. You know, does the Bible talk about God predestined those who will be saved? Yes. But he doesn't predestine individually. I, I know of people who believe that, that believe that God chose this one to be saved, that one to be lost. I don't believe that for a second. But I do believe that God predestines categories of people. Look at who he says he predestines here. Who are the people that belongs to Jesus Christ? How do you know you belong to him? And the answer is what Jesus says. Because they have obeyed your word. When we witness someone obeying the gospel, we did this last Wednesday night. 
I mean, watching someone be buried with Christ in baptism, what an incredible experience that is. Someone who says, you know what, I'm going to obey what Jesus has called me to do. I want to obey him. You go back to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and, and the way you become a disciple is through obedience to the gospel, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then notice verse 20, and then you begin the process of teaching his disciples how to obey. There's no such thing as disobedient followers of Jesus. Now, to some degree, I understand that. None of us are perfectly obedient. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to begin a journey of obedience. It is that simple. And, and with that, Jesus then says this, I pray for them. For those who obey your word, I'm going to pray for them. So he prays for us. Now, I want you to notice what he says next. I'm not praying for the world. Well, that's a weird one. I mean, did Jesus never pray for the world? Yes, Jesus prayed for the world. He hangs on the cross, and guess what he says? Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. But what he's saying in this prayer, though, is that there are certain people that I am praying for intensely and individually. I don't know how you pray in your life. Uh, June and I, we, we get up every morning and we pray. Uh, before we go off to work, we, we spend time in prayer. And, and our prayers are oftentimes simply repeats of the day before, the day before, simply because we're praying for a lot of people by name. You know, as we begin to pray, we first begin by praying for each other. I got up this morning, I'm fixing to walk out the door. June says, let me pray for you. And she prayed that God would speak through me this morning. I thank God for my wife. And then we pray for our kids. We pray for our daughter-in-laws. We pray for our grandchildren. We pray for our extended family. And then we begin to pray for our church family. We pray for our leadership. We pray for those who are battling diseases, those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, those who are struggling in their life. I mean, we just have this, you know, and we just go through the list. And, and, and I know that many of you do the exact same thing, and for that I'm so grateful. And that's what basically Jesus is saying here, is listen, I'm praying for them individually. Not, not for the world, they're not on that list. Is he praying for the world? Of course, he died for the world. But he's interceding, as Paul would say in Romans 8, 34, he's interceding for us. And I love this concept. Where is Jesus right now? He's at God's right hand. And what is he doing? He's lifting up your name. He's lifting up every one of our names. He's lifting us up when we fall. He's lifting us up when we succeed. He's lifting us up when we're struggling. He's lifting us up when we're having problems at the office. I mean, I, I think if we knew how many times Jesus has lifted up us to the Father, I think we all go, you've got to be kidding me. You love me that much? And Jesus would say, I died for you. Of course I love you that much. And so we find Jesus interceding for us. And then he goes on and he says, for they are yours. And then I love that language. And Father, all that is yours is mine, and all that is mine is yours. I don't know how y'all worked out marriage, but June and I worked out marriage in a very simple way. 
And that was, what was mine was hers, and what was hers was hers. Now, I'm joking. That's not true at all. You know, June and I are in this together. I mean, I don't have a credit card that her name is not on. uh, She doesn't have a bank account that my name is not on. I mean, it's not mine or hers, it's ours. The closest thing to mine and hers are automobiles. You know, and, and, and let me tell you, when she decides to clean up my truck, we have problems. You know, I'm like, where'd you put all that stuff that was in the back of my truck? Doesn't make any difference. What do you mean doesn't make any difference? By the way, my, my lovely wife has a philosophy, and that is what she throws away that I don't realize she throws away doesn't make any difference. And it doesn't. You know, every once in a while I'll say, do you know where such and such is? And she'll say, yep. And that's the end of it. I know where it is too, you know. I love that language, though, of Jesus. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. And then I'm amazed by this one. And glory has come to me through them. That one's sobering. God's been glorified through me. Jesus has been glorified through me. Yeah. And you, all of us who've confessed his name, we brought glory to him. And for that, Jesus is thankful. And so what happens when fallen human beings become followers of Jesus? And this is where it gets tough. He begins by saying this, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Now a lot of us have grown up in a Christianized America. My childhood was in a Christianized America. Average people didn't curse. I I wasn't around many people who were alcoholics or who struggled with drug abuse. I wasn't. Now, I know there were parts of the country where people did. But where I was raised, that wasn't the case. People tended to be civil with one another. They went to church. But we've watched the rapid secularization of America. And with the rapid secularization of America, what we've seen is a society that's turning more and more against those who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And so we're beginning to see hatred toward those of us who follow Jesus. Matthew 24, 9, you'll be hated by all nations because of me. This shouldn't shock us. But I know growing up the way a lot of us grew up, it does. And, and I used to say to my dad, why in the world would someone be that way? And he says, why does it surprise you when evil people react in evil ways? And I'm like, well, I guess that's because I was so used to the culture I was raised in. And so Jesus begins by saying, listen, the world's going to hate you, at least if you're truly following me. And then he goes on and he says, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And this is where it gets tough. Because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. What, how do we respond? And that's where it gets so very, very difficult. I mean, when I look around at our culture, and I look where its priorities are, I, I love football. But football's not my God. Uh, yeah, I'd like to have more money in the bank. But I ain't standing in line for hours and hours and hours buying a lottery ticket that might win me $1.9 billion. Can y'all believe that? 
And by the way, if you want a fascinating study, go online sometime and study the lives of people who won large lotteries and just see if that's really what you want. I mean, their lives so oftentimes are destroyed. And, and, and we live in a world where there's so much political fracture. I get up in the morning and I always want to stay up to date with the news, but i got to be honest with you, as, my, as quick as I look at the news, I want to shut it down because, really, I live in this kind of world? Lesson number one, we're not of the world, nor do we belong to the world. We have got to somehow let that sink in. And it's got to affect the way we look at one another, especially inside this building, among the people who are part of the family of God. Five or six years ago, a book came out called Destroyer of the Gods. It was written by Larry Hurtado, uh, who is a, an American theologian. He's since passed away. But, but he was especially a, a student of early Christian history. And he came out with this book, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. And he basically said the reason Christianity grew so rapidly was the fact that it focused on five areas. Now, there were others, but those were the four or the five that he said really stand out. And I want you to notice the five things that he says distinguish them from the rest of the people in that Greco-Roman world. Number one, early Christians were multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. Their church gatherings had masters. Their church gathering had slaves. Their church gathering had Jews. Their church gatherings had Gentiles. Their church had, uh, gatherings had, had rich people. Their church gatherings had poor people. They somehow were able to come together in this remarkable unity that welcomed everyone. Have we gotten off track? Probably have somewhat. I'm hoping we're moving back that direction. But that was the first thing that made them stand out. Number two, they were a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. In the midst of all the persecution that was going on, I mean, people being arrested, people being killed in the Colosseum, people being beheaded like Paul was or crucified like Peter. And what was their response? Their response was not to take up arms against the Roman Empire. Their response was to say like Jesus did, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. I've got guns at the house. But if you're expecting guns to be your ultimate protection, you're going to be gravely disappointed. Turn back to the Psalms as the kings of Israel thought, as long as we've got enough horses and chariots, we're okay. And, and the God of Israel said, really? That's what you're trusting in? Early Christians believed that God was their ultimate protector. We'll see that here in a moment. The early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and suffering. That's why I love room in the end so much. I mean, here was a group of people that oftentimes when the collection was made, they would immediately go out and buy people's freedom who had been slaves. Why? Because they wanted to take care of those who were the outcasts of society. Number four, it was common. It was a community committed to the sanctity of life. Abortion wasn't a, a big deal in the first century. That's not the way they dealt with unwanted pregnancies. What they would do was, was far more insidious. They would wait for the child to be born, and then they would simply take the child out to the dump and leave it. 
Go and read about it. It's called exposure. You didn't want a baby? Just throw it away. Put it in the dumpster. You didn't want a little girl? Take her out there and wait for a little boy to be born. I mean, they chose the sex of their babies back then, just like some people try today. And they did it by simply throwing them away. And what was amazing about early Christians is they are the ones that went to the dump. Because they knew how often babies would be left there. And it was the Christians who would take them home. It was the Christians who would take care of them. It was the Christians who would give them life. Because they believed that God was the giver of life. We need to think about that. Because it does address our modern culture. And then finally, number five, it was a sexual counterculture. In the first century, a woman who was married was expected to be faithful to her husband. Her husband wasn't expected to be faithful, period. In the Roman culture, a man who got married got married to have his children, but he went to the temple, to the temple prostitutes for sexual fulfillment. He went to the slaves if he was a slave owner. And anybody who studied American slavery knows that it happened as well here in America. You simply went and you had a relationship with someone that you owned who couldn't tell you no. Or you picked young children. That was the ancient world. It was a world far, far more crazy than we realize. We sometimes look at America and say, it's never been this bad. You go back and read early church history in the Roman Greco world. And yet Christians came along and said, we serve a God who believes one man, one woman for life. And they stayed with that and they said, that's what we offer. In a world that had found that they could not find joy and happiness in their world said, we'll give it a try. Now having said that, I want you to look at what made Christianity different. And then you look at what we live in. The divided political America, of where we, 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 we try to weaponize religion, in order to support politics. Now let me say a word about politics. I am grateful for those who serve our country. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our vice president. We need to pray for, for those who serve in the Supreme Court, those in the House and the Senate. We need to pray for our governor. We need to pray for those who, who serve in our, our state legislature and those who are judges. We need to pray for our police officers and our first responders. You all know that. At the same time, we've got to be so very careful that what ends up happening is that we end up like some I have heard. I've heard preachers who have said in the past, and by the way, depending on how far back you want to go, it can go either direction. No, you can't be a Christian if you belong to this political party. You can't be a Christian if you belong to that political party. It was the Apostle Paul who was a Roman citizen. And Paul used his Roman citizenship when it was needed to advance the gospel. I love this text here in Acts chapter 16. Paul had gone to Philippi, a Roman colony. And there he had, he had started the church. And, and, and before long he gets arrested. They, they take him into jail and they beat him and Silas mercilessly. You remember the story. And then, of course, in the middle of the night, the Lord sends an earthquake. It shatters the stocks they're in. 
the, the jailer comes in, he's ready to take his own life. They instead say, no, we're alive, we're all still here. They end up baptizing him and his whole family. The next day, they send representatives, say, we're going to let you out, but you've got to leave. And Paul sends word back and says, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. Let me tell you, we just don't realize how powerful a statement that is. That sent shudders down the spine of the Roman officials there in, in Philippi. It scared them to death. And they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul knew the power of being a Roman citizen. And yet, here's what's fascinating about it. Do you know that in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, some of y'all going, he knows all those books. I can just quote the song, okay? Do you know Paul never referred to him being a Roman citizen? We only know it because of Brother Luke over in the book of Acts. But we knew that when it advanced the gospel, he used it. And yet, writing to the Philippian church, a Roman colony made up of ex-legionnaires. I mean, that's who settled Philippi, were people who had served in the Roman legions. Writing to that church, Paul would say this. But you want me to tell you where our citizenship is? Paul, are you Roman? I mean, he had the Roman ID. He could pull it out when he needed to. But Paul said, at the end of the day, I belong to Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. The day your political allegiance takes precedent over your allegiance to Christ is the day you are a part of the world. We need to think about this. What brings us together? I would love to tell you that political ideals would do it. They won't. We've been a nation now for all of these years, and we're just as divided as we were at the very beginning. The only bridge that will bring us together is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's who we've got to be committed to. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, Jesus said. He said, instead, I've got a purpose for them. We're not of the world, but we serve God's purpose in the world. You know, we oftentimes talk about the fact that we're salt. Jesus used this in the Sermon on the Mount. Right, right after the Beatitudes, he says, listen, you're salt. You're salt. And we all know that. Or he said, you're light. I mean, either illustration was an incredible illustration. He said, you're salt and you're light, and that's the purpose I'm sending you out into the world. Salt preserves. Life illuminates the darkness. He says, will you be that for me? And he says, if you will, I'll promise that Father will protect you. I don't pray, Father, you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. And so we have this incredible promise of God's protection. I love Paul over, uh, excuse me, let me begin first with this. John 17, 17. How does he protect us? Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. Or as I would say in my translation, make them different from the world. How? How? By the truth of your word. And then Paul, over in Romans chapter 8, he says, Can I tell you who's going to harm us? He says, For I am convinced that neither death or life, angels and demons, the present, the future, powers, height, depth. By the way, y'all underline that word height next time you crack a short joke. Height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What are we afraid of? Nothing. As long as we're in the hands of Jesus. And so Jesus ends with these words. As you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them. I'm sending them. We're not of the world, but Jesus has sent us into the world. And by the way, if you're going to go into the world, you can't be this right there. Now some of y'all are thinking, well, you just said we need to be salt. I did. But not this kind of salt. We need to be that kind of salt. Salt that's in the salt shaker is not a value. We've got to be out in the world. Appreciate Stan so much because one of Stan's pet peeves is saying, all right, now we're going to leave church. Stan says, no, you don't leave church. You are the church. We don't go out into the world. We take the church into the world. We are the church to the world. Amen, Stan. We are. It's time to get out of the salt shaker and make a difference in this community. Part of the world? Not a part of the world, but in the world. In the world to be light, in the world to be salt, in the world to take the mission of God to the world. If you're not a child of God, it begins with that first step of becoming one of his disciples, obeying his word. It's that simple. If you are a child of God, but boy, somehow you got off track, maybe it's time for you to say, I need to come back, get on track. I need to be focused on the call of God in my life for the sake of the world. We're here to help you with that. He's tenderly calling. Won't you answer? Let's get we stand and sing.